Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers Bridget O'Gorman in Dublin and Candid West in Zurich. In this week's podcast, we'll be talking about the recent explosion in formjacking attacks, a zero-day vulnerability that's been discovered in the latest version of Apple's Mac OS, how one US ISP was, forced to, was found to be storing customer passwords in clear text, and how outdated themes and plugins are being exploited by hackers to inject malicious JavaScript code in thousands of WordPress websites. But first, let's talk about ransomware. Earlier this week, it was reported that the Pennsylvania Senate Democratic Caucus in the US paid over $700,000 to rebuild its IT systems after being hit by a ransomware attack. The caucus was attacked in March 2017, when pretty much its entire network, including web servers, was encrypted by attackers. The attackers demanded a ransom of 28 Bitcoin, which was approximately $30,000 at the time. But the caucus opted not to pay it, and instead uh, they decided to rebuild their network from scratch. The cost of the rebuild has since run to $703,000. This information was obtained through through a right-to-know request by local reporters at uh, Trib Live. Oh my God. Goodness, I mean, would they have not been better off just paying the ransom then? Yeah, this is probably going to be an obvious question for a lot of people listening to this. And indeed, uh, the Democratic Caucus in Pennsylvania is one of a growing number of organizations um, where the recovery costs have greatly exceeded the initial ransom demand. Uh, Two very prominent cases have been the US city of Atlanta and the Colorado Department of Transportation. Uh, However, um, paying the ransom, I suppose, may not be as easy a fix as some people might think because there's plenty of cases where uh, organisations have paid the ransom and they haven't gotten a decryption key in turn. So if they did pay the ransom, they may be just adding to their recovery costs. And um, secondly, maybe even more importantly, it creates a precedent that could probably further encourage ransomware attacks and just perpetuate the problem. Um, so if nobody paid the ransom, uh, ransomware attackers would eventually call it quits. Uh, we can only hope. <laughs> Someday. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on from one form of cybercrime to another because we want to talk about formjacking. Yes, we do. So um, we just published new research actually this week um, on our blog about formjacking. Um, so this is a threat we have seen being exploited by cybercriminals um, a lot in recent weeks and months especially. Now, what is formjacking, I suppose, is the first question we should answer. Um, at Semantic, formjacking is a term we use to describe the use of malicious JavaScript code to steal credit card details and other personal information from payment forms uh, on the checkout web pages of primarily e-commerce sites. So online retail sites, online shopping sites, sites where you book holidays, all that sort of thing. Um, so how it works is that when a customer of um, an e-commerce site like this clicks submit or an equivalent button after entering their details into a website's payment form, the malicious JavaScript code that has been injected there by the cyber criminals uh, collects all the entered information, including payment card details and things like the user's name and address. And this is then sent to the attacker's servers. And the attackers can then use this information to perform potentially payment card fraud or else they could sell the details on to other cyber criminals on the dark web as well or do both i suppose also 
Um, and now, form jacking isn't a new threat as such. As far back as kind of the mid noughties we saw this kind of activity with some web extensions that were um, inserting mal- malicious JavaScript code to steal information from web forms. But um, we've seen a you know huge amount of attention on form jacking lately, uh, primarily due to the activity of the Magecart uh, attack group. Yeah, that's a familiar name. We've discussed uh, Magecart on this uh, podcast before, haven't we? Yeah, we first discussed them back in June. I think in one of our one of our first episodes of the podcast, um, following a form jacking attack that. Uh, they carried out Ticketmaster's websites in the UK and some other international sites that was very um, high profile. And in that case, uh, Magecart used a software supply chain attack, something else we've often discussed on this podcast, um, to get onto Ticketmaster's website and carry out the form jacking attack, which then allowed them to siphon off customers' payment card details. And um, in that case, the Magecart I can't pronounce it. The Magecart attackers <laughs> injected malicious um, JavaScript code onto the website after they compromised a chatbot, a chatbot from um, the Inventa tech firm, which was used on Ticketmaster's website for customer support queries and things. And the code was potentially on the Ticketmaster website for almost a year, with um, some international Ticketmaster customers warned they could have been affected if they bought tickets between September 2017 and June 2018. So like a good period of time. And Inventor did acknowledge that the t- attackers got onto the website via their um, chatbot. And they said that Magecart had exploited a number of vulnerabilities um, and targeted its front-end servers in order to get onto the chat onto their um, server and alter the chatbot code. And this just underlines, you know, what we've said before, and it's, you know, about supply chain attacks and, you know, no matter how good your own cybersecurity practices are, attackers will go after a weak link in your supply chain if they can. And I suppose it was this breach from Ticketmaster that really brought um, Magecart to wider attention and the attacks are carrying out. And since then, we have seen them carry out um, a number of form jacking attacks with, I suppose, the other very high profile attack they carried out being against um, British Airways, the British airline. And in that case, the personal data of 380,000 of the airline's customers um, was potentially compromised. Um, in that case, we don't know what we don't know what the initial infection vector may have been that allowed the attackers onto the site, but we do know um, there could have been a supply chain attack. We just don't know what it was at this stage. But um, what we do know is that they took steps to avoid their, having their activity detected. So fairly sophisticated attack, really. They set up a spoofed web domain which was designed to look like a legitimate British Airways uh, domain, and they even purchased paid um, SSL certificates to make the web domains look more like um, legitimate servers. And in that case, they were only on the website for a couple of weeks. So from um, kind of the 21st of August to the 5th of September. So it wasn't as sustained as the attack on Ticketmaster. And they've also had other high profile attacks on um, uh, US electronics retailer called New Egg, which I hadn't heard of uh, before this happened. And also a company called Feedify, which is um, used by many websites to serve up push notifications to users. So presumably, that would have been targeted as part of a supply chain attack. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, so uh, they're all the publicly reported attacks, but uh, what has our own uh, telemetry shown? Yeah, so spurred on by all these attacks, uh, we looked into this area more ourselves. And basically our telemetry backed up the fact that this is an increasing threat. So we looked at telemetry since mid-August, the 13th of August. And in that time, we blocked almost a quarter of a million attempts at form jacking. So 248,000 attempts, so pretty significant. 
And what's interesting is that more than one third of those attempts that we've blocked have occurred in one week, uh, last week from the 13th to the 20th of September. So that indicates that this activity is kind of ramping up in the last little while. And if we compare, you know, that week of September 13th to 20th to the same week in August, the number of instances of form jacking that we blocked more than doubled. So increase, the percentage increase was, I think, 117%. So it was a really significant ju- jump um, in activity in that area. And then um, to get an insight into the type of businesses that are being targeted by form jacking attacks, other than the very widely reported ones, obviously, um, we examined, you know, just like a thousand instances of form jacking that we blocked over the period um, of September 18 to 20. And in that time, 57 individual websites were impacted. Uh, these websites, unsurprisingly, were mostly online retail sites, but they range from small niche sites to larger retail operations. And it did seem very much like a global issue. Uh, websites affected range from um, a fashion retailer in Australia, there was a supplier of outdoor accessories in France, and there was a fitness Italian fitness retailer. And then there was other retailers affected, like a car parts supplier, site selling kitchen accessories and site selling customised um, gifts. So while, you know, it's the big breaches like British Airways and Ticketmaster that make headlines, and um, what our research shows is that any company anywhere in the world that processes payments online could be a potential victim of form jacking and that it's a severe problem at the moment. Yeah, it sounds like there's um, a lot of people have suddenly discovered this at once. Like not only do you have mage cards seeming to go on the rampage, but there's possibly a lot of uh, copycat operations because yeah. that's what you see usually is, uh, you know, once uh, one uh, successful uh, attack takes place, there's a lot of people trying to jump on the bandwagon and do the same thing. Definitely. Um, OK, um, thanks for that. Uh, if anyone wants to read more about uh, form jacking, be sure to check out uh, the research on our blog, which is at uh, semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence uh, now moving on to our next item and it's uh, Apple they released their latest version of Mac OS uh, earlier this week on Monday and it seems that it already has an unpatched vulnerability uh, Candid does this mean that Mac users shouldn't go updating their operating system just yet? No, I think as always with any updates, you should install it as soon as possible, right? And yes, the latest one, the Mojave, has been released last Monday. So it's definitely time to update because, of course, it fixes a lot of other issues. Uh, So it's always better to install it quickly uh, and then kind of deal with all the the other issues. But it is true. Apart from a lot of new features, there is already a zero-day vulnerability, so no patch available that um, is kind of making the rounds in the news, right? As part of the new user data protection scheme uh, introduced by Mojave, users actually need to provide their explicit consent uh, for accessing any private information, such as uh, location services, contacts, calendar, photos, reminders, and any other sensitive data. So this change was probably implemented to prevent a previous issue that was found where apps could actually kind of simulate clicks, which would then mimic the user behavior of granting access and therefore providing access to the app to data that it should actually not get its hands on. So to prevent this, uh, this change was introduced, but of course this also means that it could lead to quite a few security prompts for the user. And we all know that from 20 years ago that it's probably not the way to go. So 
they introduced also a feature for the operating system allowing you to pre-authorize the apps for certain access to certain objects so that you, in the end, don't have to click all the time, right? But unfortunately, this brings me also to the new issue. And it seems like Patrick Wardle, which is a researcher who is known for finding a lot of issues in macOS, he found a trivial way of using an unprivileged app to still gain access to any of those sensitive data objects. And to prove his point, he made a small video where he demonstrates that an unprivileged app accesses the user's address book, which of course should be confidential, and the app he's using has no administrative right, but of course it still bypasses the new mechanism and therefore still is access to, uh, it still gains access to the sensitive data. Uh, he said that the vulnerability is quite trivial, but he didn't release any details on it yet, uh, should be following in uh, November. So we of course keep an eye open on it. And I guess as always, uh, be vigilant when running any untrusted or unknown application on your system. This is just kind of adding one another issue to the same thing. So always be vigilant. And of course, yes, do do the update, install the newest version of the OS, uh, even though there is no patch available for this specific issue at the moment. So I presume Patrick isn't uh, releasing any details on it until um, Apple actually patches it themselves. Is that right? It's unclear at the moment, uh, as there is a security conference going on in November, so there might be some details released by then. Um, or, of course, as he said, it's a trivial one. It might also be that some other researcher will find out the, the way he did it and then releasing details on Twitter. We'll see. But luckily, it is something that uh, is not ex exploitable remotely, so it's definitely a little more limited in the use for attackers. I see. Okay, um, let's go on to our next item, uh, which is about some news that broke this week about uh, the US ISP RCN, who it seems was storing their customer passwords in clear text. Yeah, so this is a, a worrying, but uh, perhaps not terribly surprising story, unfortunately. So basically, a Twitter user call, who goes by the handle Lomgrim, uh, wrote online over the weekend about how he had contacted RCN, his ISP provider, and they're a pretty big company, I think, in the US. And to his great surprise, uh, the customer support agent he spoke to was able to read his 26-character long randomly generated password, which he had just set uh, back to him over the phone. Um, and Longgren said that the customer care agent did this without really doing any steps to validate his identity, believing the fact that they had access to his password and ClearText is bad enough. And then to really make matters worse, um, the customer care agent said to him that his password looked very long and odd. And was he sure he wanted to keep it? Oh dear, uh, this sounds uh, pretty bad. Um, had uh, RCN anything to say about it? Yeah, well, um, when Longgren initially tweeted about this, he got a reply from the official um, RCN account which said that agents need to see the passwords to verify account ownership. Um, and I'm sure there are other ways <laughs> they could do that. Yeah. Um, so following the minor storm uh, that was created once the story got some attention online, uh, RCN then did release a statement um, which said they were looking into the matter and that they take all concerns like this seriously. But um, worryingly enough, it seems that this has been a practice for quite a while because um, ZDNet had a story on it and they uncovered a tweet 
from back in 2014, which uh, reported the same behavior, that an RCN agent was able to read uh, customers' password back to them over the phone. And when Lomgren posted this story on Reddit as well, um, numerous people reported having similar experiences. And obviously this is, I mean, it's quite serious as like, there's no way passwords should be stored in plain text. And customer service, excuse me, customer service agents definitely shouldn't have access to them because obviously the privacy implications of that are huge. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely serious, all right. But before we pile onto RCN, um, they're far from the only company with, um, I suppose, inadvisable security policies like this, are they? No, definitely not. That's what I'm saying. It's not so surprising, unfortunately. Um, they're far from unique. There was actually a similar incident, two similar incidents recently. Um, there was one a few months ago where a T-Mobile um T-Mobile Austria now to be clear um, they admitted on Twitter that they stored passwords in plain text and um, in that case as well when customers pointed out that you know this was not a good idea um, whoever was in charge of their social media that day told customers not to worry as their security was so great that there was no chance they'd be hacked um, which is just not something any company should say because it's definitely it's never true. No company is unhackable and you definitely just make yourself a target uh, saying things like this. But uh, thankfully, it seems T-Mobile Austria, you know, realised the error of their ways pretty quickly after the um, online backlash about it. And they have since introduced password hashing. And then there was a more recent case, um, actually just this month as well, um, in, earlier on in September, where a fetish app, uh, basically Tinder for people with uh, specific fetishes called Whippler, which is a great name, uh, was, re- <laughs> was revealed to also uh, be storing passwords and plain text. And, you know, in that case as well, there was obviously, a, like with that, on that type of app, there was obviously a real risk of kind of extortion or a similar blackmail being carried out against customers. Absolutely. If, yeah, definitely. If a hacker or a rogue employee was able to, you know, access their accounts and discover their real identity. Because obviously, you know, not everybody would necessarily be comfortable with like, you know, their parents or their neighbours or various people in their life knowing that they were on that sort of app so I mean that was pretty serious uh, but again once the danger of doing this was pointed out to Whippler they did take steps to encrypt passwords so thankfully in both those cases the companies you know kind of realised there are other ways and did take steps to resolve the issues excuse me resolve the issues but um, I suppose it just shows that you really can't take for granted that companies have good cybersecurity practices or are even aware of what those practices are. So that is pretty worrying. I know it really is all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but thankfully in, in those cases, uh, we, we've seen companies kind of respond positively yeah. and make the necessary changes, you know. Um, okay, I think we, we have time for one more item um, because uh, we wanted to talk about uh, how content management systems, uh, which are under constant attack, uh, but there's been a recent wave uh, of attacks focusing on WordPress using what's known as uh, an evil cursor attack. Um, what's all this about, uh, Candid? Yeah, I mean, you said it perfectly right. The content management systems like Drupal, Joomla, WordPress, and any of the other systems, they're kind of in a constant crosshair of attackers uh, for decades, right? Because it's an easy way in for them to manipulate any website. But since the beginning of September of this year, um, we actually saw a new wave of attacks uh, that have been carried out against outdated WordPress themes and plugins and add-ons. 
And the activity was definitely increased uh, due to various exploits being used to break into those sites. So we have seen a few thousand WordPress websites being compromised in the last few weeks alone. And once the attackers found a way due to an unpatched vulnerability into the CMS, they then injected the usual obfuscated blob of JavaScript into the web files or into the WP posts table of the WordPress database, which basically means that it gets loaded every time someone visits the website. And of course, this blob of JavaScript, which was inserted, then loads another malicious JavaScript from a remote site, which redirects the user to a traffic distribution system. And as usual, this can redirect you to any malicious website, but in the instances that we looked at, the redirect uh, actually happened to a classical tech support scam page. You know, the ones which, once you're on the website, they ask the user to call a hotline in order to disinfect a, well, alleged virus infection on their machine. And of course, the attackers could change it, but it seems like it's working for them at the moment. Okay, so for once, this isn't a crypto mining script or some sort of hijacking script that's injected. Um, but what's the deal with this um, evil cursor thing you mentioned? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so far, it could have been used for anything. Uh, luckily, not for crypto mining at the moment. But the evil cursor technique which was used is quite simple, but definitely evil. And it actually goes back to researchers at Malwarebytes, which have found that some of the tech support scam pages and also similar like browser lock sites were using something that has now been called the evil cursor technique. And the idea behind it is to prevent the user from, well, closing the browser window or preventing them from navigating away from the scam page, right? As you want to keep them as long as possible on the scam page. And we know from the past, right, usually that's done with pop-up windows to kind of scare them away or some scripts that reload the page over and over again. So just to make it very cumbersome to navigate away from it. But some of the attackers found an interesting way with the newest Chrome browser. And it's a very simple trick where they load a special cursor. So actually the HTML allows you to load a any given specific image as a cursor. And the nastiness, of course, is that the page loads a 128 by 128 transparent image as a mouse cursor. Well, actually, it's not fully transparent because then you wouldn't see any cursor at all, right? Which would be nasty as well, but probably not as, as good for their techniques. But in that case, they added a small mouse pointer image as well, but just not at the right location. So it's kind of five centimeters off from the point where you actually click. So it's very strange if you navigate with this because that means the user thinks he's clicking on something on the website, like closing the window, for example. But of course, in reality, the mouse pointer is at a different location and therefore nothing happens if they click. So that's quite confusing. And I think it might definitely lead to a few users being stuck for a long time on the website, which then again, it kind of adds to the scenario of your machine being heavily infected with a virus and that you should actually call someone to disinfect it, right? But of course, as always, we should uh, point out, we don't recommend calling any suspicious tech support numbers which randomly appear while you're browsing the web, right? Uh, probably also, if you own a website, make sure that you update your content management system to the newest versions. Also, update, 
update any included add-ons and themes. Just make sure that you're running the newest version. And it probably doesn't hurt either to periodically check if your website has been compromised and any new JavaScripts have been added to it. Okay. Uh, thank you, Candice. That sounds like uh, one of the most infuriating types of uh, attacks you could probably encounter while visiting a web page. Um, okay, uh, that's all we have time for this week. Um, if you've been enjoying the podcast, uh, don't forget to subscribe uh, to avoid missing out on your weekly dose. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or Medium at medium.com forward slash Threat hyphen intel if you want to lead all our latest research uh, including um, the research on form jacking which we were discussing earlier uh, check out our blog which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence we'll be back again next week when we'll be once again discussing what's happening in the world of cybersecurity. until then thank you and goodbye